Next, this month's special series focus on disaster medicine and preparedness. Unforeseen disasters carry unique challenges and learning opportunities. This month, we present conversations that scrutinize our plans and protocols and ask, how prepared are we? How will we react? Once thought of as a diagnosis for war heroes, now PTSD can be caused by something as innocuous for a pilot as running off a runway, an engine fire, or a simple evacuation. For Mimi Tompkins, landing a plane without its roof intact was the beginning of a long journey through PTSD, its symptoms and effects. What has she done to change the way in which the airline industry prepares for and manages a crisis aftermath? You are listening to ReachMD, a channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today to discuss in which ways the airline industry now prepares for and works through a disaster with relation to the Incident Stress Management Program is Captain Mimi Tompkins. Mimi, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to join you today. For our listeners that are not familiar with who you are, can you just tell me a brief little story about what got you involved with with designing this disaster program? Yes, I'm a captain for Aloha Airlines in Honolulu, and in 1988, 18 feet of the upper fuselage of an older Boeing 737 ripped off in flight, and after 13 minutes of flight, we landed safely. However, many passengers were injured, and one of our dear friends, a flight attendant, was sucked out of the aircraft. I'm glad you're here to talk to us. I'm glad you landed safely. So what happened that made you kind of go on to create the program? Can you tell us a little bit about the program? It's called the Critical Incident Response Program in the airline industry, and we follow a model of the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation. And I got interested when I was eventually diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of the accident. It took about a year and a half for me to finally get diagnosed. And unfortunately, during those years, there continued to be airline accidents, more so than the past five years. And I watched Aftermath of an Accident on television in 1989 and became very upset because I knew what those the crew members were going to be going through. And in my anger which I directed at everybody I possibly could within our pilot union, I found out that there really is or was no program to assist crew members because accidents really are so rare and no one had thought of putting anything together. So I started pushing the union through safety committees to come up with a procedure to help surviving crew members. And I was eventually put on a task force in 1991. We did research for three years. And then in 1994, established the Critical Incident Response Program for the Airline Pilot Association. And at the same time, many different airlines, like Delta, Northwest, and Alaska, were putting together company programs. So we worked together with the companies to standardize what we were doing. I know that in 1997, there was another accident with TWA, and at that time, Vice President Gore commissioned a task force that mandated airlines to provide care for the families and the passengers and their families. 
And did they kind of lift stuff from your program? Yes and no. The care program for families, passengers and their families, concentrates often more on grief and, of course, the support and education for people after an accident is the same as the Critical Incident Response Program. But many members of the Critical Incident Response Team were active in helping to put together the committees and the programs to work with passengers and their families. And again, this was an effort to standardize what is offered to families following an airline accident and to make sure that the very best that's known about grief and stress reduction is utilized in the upcoming years. Mimi, what's the first thing that's supposed to be done in the program when when someone goes through a trauma such as this? The very most important thing is what we call psychological first aid, and that's to get the person out of the event, if at all possible. If they can be removed and taken to an area where they don't have to look at it, where there's some calm and quietness, get them to just calm down, and we offer them water. If we know they haven't had any food in several hours, we try to get them to eat just a little bit of something, even if they don't want to. We try to keep them warm or cool, depending on what they need. So basically just psychological first aid. But with pilot crew members, you know, they often are put into seclusion so that their version of the accident cannot be tainted by anybody that they talk to. And then often an attorney is brought in with them. So sometimes it's very hard for us to be with the crew members immediately after an accident. Mimi, do the airline companies have someone specifically trained to help with disasters, or do they do they call in an on-call team at the time of an incident? It's both. Many, I would say over 50 of the air carriers, crew member, pilot, flight attendant, and often other company employee critical incident response programs, and we call them peers. The volunteers are trained in a two-day certification course, followed up by recurrent training throughout the year and every year. And then there are different levels of more advanced courses the volunteers can take. And these volunteers only provide support and education and a bridge to mental health and physicians. And there are networks of mental health professionals and doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, who work with the team that the volunteers refer people to. So it's a two-day program. Could a layperson do it, or do you need to be a physician or a therapist or someone in the airline industry? Well, we prefer for our airline or aviation people that the people who attend as a volunteer be associated with aviation or airline just so they understand the industry. And anyone can volunteer to come to the training. We don't necessarily use everyone that comes, but there's often logistical things that need to be done after an accident. And if we don't believe the person would be good on one-on-one with people, they'll be used in, you know, many different other ways. So we try to use every volunteer. People do not have to be physicians or mental health professionals, but we do prefer the mental health professionals and physicians and psychiatrists, psychologists that are part of our team to attend the two-day course so they can understand the airline culture or the aviation culture 
and get to know the people that will be referring people to them. How often do you have courses? Is this a once a year, once every five years? Many of the airlines have a course once a year. The airlines that have a fairly well-established program Training is also offered by the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, and this training is held throughout the country all during the year because the method that we utilize is the same that's used by Crash Fire Rescue, and there's a large network of courses offered. Let's kind of go through a course. What does it look like? You've got two days of intensive training, and how much of it is counseling and how much of it is background? I mean, what, what are you learning in that two days? Well, because our, our volunteers are not counselors, we're educating. We're educating on what is stress, what's the difference with critical incident stress, what's the difference with post-traumatic stress. So definitions, terminology, we teach how to do a diffusing, which is the conversation that a volunteer or mental health professional will have with a crew member or someone following an accident or incident, the conversation following within the first 24 hours. It's called the diffusing, and that's a discussion about what happened. And it's not so much the facts of what happened, but it's the reaction of the person. What was going on in that person's head? What were they saying to themselves? And if they felt anything, what kind of reaction did they have? Trying to get that starting to come out so it's not buried. And then some advice is given to them on what they can do that day when they get home, if they can go home, to mitigate the effects of stress. Things like going for a walk with a loved one or running or doing some form of vigorous exercise that they're used to doing, drinking water instead of alcohol, waiting two or three days before they drink alcohol, and then letting them know that they may have trouble sleeping and why. Just education is what we're doing. And so that's being trained in this first two-day course. And this is some of the stuff you did not receive personally. Right. Do you feel cheated a little bit? Like, hey, I needed that. Well, I think back in 1988, it wasn't common knowledge. I think if, if the accident happened today and I didn't get it, absolutely. I think it's neglect, actually. Let's talk about PTSD a little bit. I think by its definition, the, the event has to be kind of extraordinary. Is that correct? Yes. A person, when we define a critical event, we define it as the potential to cause harm to themselves or someone under their care. So, for example, as a physician, you know, if a patient almost dies, you know, then that could possibly result in a negative stress reaction. I think even uh, receiving a subpoena for getting sued as a physician could potentially lead to the development of PTSD. Well, you know, since we've begun the program, we do see events like that that can have the same reaction as almost dying or near-death experience because if a person sees their entire livelihood possibly in danger and their family, you know, their family will suffer a result of that. As a result of that, it can also have very severe effects on people. That's true. You know, I know for pilots, they are extremely weary of seeing psychiatrists and they really cannot be on any sort of psychotropic medications or they'll get grounded. That's correct. 
And so I could see that they would not want to go seek help because they're going to be afraid they'll lose their, their livelihood. Well, that's what took me so long to seek help. I was convinced that I would lose my license and my ability to fly if I did talk about it. So I kept it, you know, different things that were happening to me to myself and just hoped it would go away. So you were, in a sense, flying impaired for eight months. I was very careful to call in sick if I felt impaired. If I couldn't get enough sleep, I would call in sick. My criteria was if I went to work today and the top ripped off, could I handle it? And if the answer was no, I didn't go to work. So I called in sick a lot. That's good that you protected the uh, ones you're supposed to be in charge of. Well, what do you think about medicating pilots? We're going off the topic a little bit, but I personally would rather be on an airplane where the pilot is on Prozac, who needs to be on Prozac, rather than being on the plane with a pilot who won't take the Prozac and should be on the Prozac. Well, I agree with you. Obviously, every single case is different, and I believe that before a pilot were to be medicated before flying, there would need to be a very thorough assessment to make sure that person is fit to fly. But I do believe you're correct that there are a number of pilots who would be more alert and more competent if they were allowed to take medication. Does your organization do anything in terms of lobbying the FAA to kind of loosen their their, um, strictness on certain medications? Well, as a pilot, we, we have no say with the FAA and their decisions. Our airline pilot union does have a medical department, and doctors are on contract to us, and they are certainly at the leading edge of what is needed for treatment of pilots, and they do lobby on behalf of pilots. We know or we've heard that, you know, airplanes can kind of land themselves, that the hardware takes care of itself, but it seems like the FAA treats pilots like hardware, and... uh, doesn't really care about the aftermath of their psyches. Well, I believe the FAA's opinion is if the pilot needs some medication, they shouldn't be there, and I disagree with that. I think pilots are human, and there are temporary situations where they need some help, and uh, the medications today are far, far better than many years ago and have less side effects, and there are some people, I think, who could benefit from them. I completely concur, and I hope the I hope the FAA is listening. And on that note, I'd like to thank our guest, Captain Mimi Tompkins. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thanks for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Disaster Medicine and Preparedness. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com and download ReachMD's new iPhone application, Medical Radio. Listen to the same live stream of ReachMD medical news and information you enjoy on XM160. Plus, CME and thousands of searchable podcasts. Download the Medical Radio app today.